Good morning. The uh, scripture reading today will be from Acts, the chapter 26, verses 12 through 27. Thank you. Just kidding. We're going to verse 29. <coughs> chapter 26, verses 12 through 29. <coughs> this is... Uh, Starting out with Paul defending himself with King Agrippa, he's also no, uh, at, or Herod. Um, he starts off explaining where he's coming from and the Pharisee, as a Pharisee, you know, according to the strictest sect and all that good stuff. And he's explaining, you know, what he thought used to be right. Uh, and now, um, and then he proceeds with, with this uh, scripture. Starting in verse 12. <clears throat> While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission to the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness to only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear, in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also to Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should, they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but the, what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his, and that and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, "Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad." But Paul said, "I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth." For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escaped his notice. For this has not been done in, in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Thank you, thank you, Donovan. Good morning, church. Good to see you, family. Good to be with you today. It is seemingly like we have, through the book of Acts, covered almost every aspect of what it's like for a Christian to live out the mission that Christ gave to his disciples. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we see the moment before he ascends to be back to his father when he says he'll send his spirit to be with those who are his people, Christ gives his very simple mission to the church. 
He says, I want you to go be my witnesses, starting where you live and working out towards those who are outside of your domain. But just go be witnesses of my resurrection. Be witnesses to people that Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he resurrected, and now he sits on the throne at the right hand of God. That's where he is. Go be my witnesses. And so we have chronicled the book of Acts as best as possible to see every nook and cranny to understand how Christians live this mission. And today we're going to add one more to our list. We're going to talk about how the mission of Christ comes to those in authority. In authority. The Apostle Paul finds himself in front of not one, but two incredibly powerful authorities. You see, Paul has actually been held in custody for about two years at this point. He's waiting a trial on some bogus charges that Jewish leaders had brought against him nearly two and a half years before this when he was charged with bringing a Gentile into the temple, which was bogus. Festus, who you heard in verse 25, tell Paul that he was going crazy when he said, all the learning you're doing, Paul, is making you crazy. Festus is the newly appointed Roman governor of all of Judea. He dwells in Caesarea, which is north of Judea, but he oftentimes comes down to Jerusalem and some other areas. But he is the newly appointed. He's taken over for Felix, who Paul first appeared before in, verse, in chapter 24. But now we have Festus, who is there. And he has no idea what to do with Paul. The charges that are against Paul are kind of bogus, and he knows that. But he's in a difficult political situation. He wants to make friends with these Jewish leaders that he is now working with. And so what he wants to do is find a way to have Paul be guilty, but there's just not really a good way for Paul to be guilty. And so he's confused about what to do with Paul. But at the same time, about this time, King Agrippa II of the famous um, Agrippa family, the Herod family, uh, those that have been involved in Jesus' life in the early church, he's visiting this newly appointed Roman governor, Festus, to welcome him to the area. And because of his long-standing tradition and history in the region, Festus, being pretty smart at this moment, asks King Agrippa to hear Paul's case so that he could advise Festus on what to do with Paul. And so here is Paul standing in front of King Agrippa, who has charge over the temple in Jerusalem and other provinces in the Roman uh, kingdom, and Festus, who's the newly appointed powerful ruler of Judea. So it's before these two incredibly powerful figures that Paul is standing. These men are the civil authorities, and they have Paul's freedom, Paul's reputation, and Paul's life in their hands. And in the midst of all this, Paul somehow stays focused on the mission that Christ gave him from the beginning of his Christianity, to go be my witness to anyone and everyone. There Paul is standing with his life on the line, and yet what he's thinking about in front of these two authority figures is how do I make sure that Jesus is declared and God is glorified? How do I do that, even in front of authority? And so today, what I want us as we look at how 
we bring the gospel to authority. Let's look at Paul as a template or a model to understand how we can do that. And we're going to do it three simple ways. We're going to see Paul's message, Paul's method, and Paul's mindset as he brings the gospel to people in authority. And by way of a reminder, there are um, half sheets of paper out in the foyer uh, by where the ushers are on those tables. If anyone wants to grab a piece of paper, there is uh, the sermon outline that you can follow along and take notes with as well. Those are available each week for you. You can go now if you'd like and or you can continue to listen. But let's start with Paul's message. You know, one of the things is you trace Paul's life in the book of Acts from chapter 13 forward, wherever he is, whoever he's preaching to, his message pretty much remains the same about Jesus Christ, but he tailors the message to the audience. He wants to make sure the message is clear, the message is understood, and the people that he's speaking to actually get the message. And so to authority, Paul is able to share the message of Jesus Christ in a way that actually is a story that involves his life. You'll notice this is the third time that Paul's conversion story is actually told in the book of Acts. Chapter 9 it's told, chapter 22 it's told, and here in chapter 26 Paul tells it for a third time. But Paul's pretty sharp. He tells his conversion story again in front of Festus and Agrippa for a reason. He's not just wanting to tell them uh, the message of his conversion so they would be impressed with the fact that he is converted to Jesus Christ. He does something very interesting. He doesn't just directly preach to them, but he uses his story as a model to present to them the gospel. Look in verse 18 with me, you'll see Paul does three really important things when he tells his own conversion story about how he preaches then the gospel to these in authority. In verse 18, he's giving the message about how after being converted, God said to him through Jesus, I have a mission for you. In verse 18, to open people's eyes so that they would turn from darkness to light and be freed from a sovereign power of Satan to the to the actual power of God. And you see what Paul is doing, he's not directly saying to Agrippa, nor is he directly saying to Festus, hey, you guys are blind. Your eyes aren't open. You're in darkness, not light. You're actually under the power of Satan, not the power of God. He doesn't just come boldly forward to these authority figures and preach at them. But in telling his own story of conversion, he reveals to them their need for salvation. That the world, Paul says here, as God has told him, actually has eyes that are not open. Their eyes are closed. They're darkened. They're not in light. They don't know what they're doing. In fact, they're in darkness. And he says that they're actually not under their own control and power, but actually the power of Satan. The need for salvation, Paul reveals, is this, that we need our eyes to be open, and we need to turn from darkness to power. The problem that Paul presents to them in this message is pretty simple. We are, as a human race, blind to the reality that we are lost. That's why he talks about darkness. And we are blind to the reality that we are actually enslaved. You know, the Bible presents the message of sin as not just moral mishap, but actually being enslaved to a power that could care less about you. That's how sin is really presented in Scripture. It's a master 
In the very first instance when we see Cain rise up and kill Abel, when God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door, seeking to pounce upon you. That sin is not just moral mishap or, or things that you do that you ought not to do, but sin is actually a power that has dominion over you, that controls you, that runs your life, that convinces you that you are the smartest person in the world, that no one else knows what you know, and that if everyone else would just get on the same page as you, the world would be fine. Sin convinces us of darkness. It blinds us to the reality that we're not smart enough even to run our own lives. And it enslaves us that we constantly have to feed it and serve it. And Paul is saying very subtly, hey Agrippa, hey Festus, the mission God gave me was to go tell the world, which includes you, that your eyes need to be opened. That you're blind to the reality that you can't, that you're lost, that you're in darkness. And that you have no clue that you don't serve God, and nor do you serve even yourself, you serve Satan. Now, the second thing he does in verse 18 is he doesn't just tell them the need for salvation, but also the method, the way it's done. When he says that their eyes are open so they may turn from darkness to light, from power of Satan to God, that they may receive two things, pardon and position. The method of salvation is that we receive. We don't earn, we don't merit, we don't produce, we receive. We accept with open eyes a pardon, the forgiveness of our sins, and a position or a place that he says they're sanctified among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. The method for us to be saved out of this darkness, to have our eyes opened, is to recognize that we need to receive a pardon for our guilt but also not just a pardon for our guilt, but a position amongst God's people. Collected together, those that are now sanctified. The Bible uses the word sanctified to mean holy and set apart. In a position that can relate to God. In a position that is in now fellowship with God. So what we receive in this method of salvation is not just off the hook for our guilt, but a reconnection, sanctified relationship with God. And finally, Paul says in verse 23, the basis for our salvation. Look down in verse 23 when he says to Agrippa and to Festus. The Christ, he says, speaking of Moses and the prophets, said that this had to happen. That the Christ must suffer. And that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So what is the light that actually opens our eyes that we are in darkness and enslaved? What is the light that opens our eyes that forgiveness is available and position and relationship to God is available? He says it's when we understand that the Christ suffered and that he was the first to rise. Yes, Jesus endured torture and shame. He endured ridicule in his ultimate death. He was buried in a tomb of a rich man that was not his. And yet he overcame that death, conquered death, and had victory over it through his resurrection, and now we know as believers in him that the, that the offering of Jesus Christ was fully accepted because God raised him back to life. God accepted that offering. And that understanding that Christ suffered, was buried, and he rose again is the light that shows us that we can be saved. And so for us, when we think about authority, whether it's a boss, 
whether it's a teacher or a coach, someone in our life that has authority, making the gospel first about your convictions is one of the best ways to introduce the message of Jesus Christ to people in your life. Instead of just directly hammering them with preaching, sometimes we can share with them personal convictions that we hold, like Paul did here, that he was personally convicted that he needed to help people have their eyes opened, that they needed salvation, that they could be saved, and that Jesus is the basis for their salvation. So that's Paul's message. It doesn't change. It just takes on the form for the audience that he's preaching to. Secondly, let's look at Paul's method. How does he approach authority? How does he interact with authority? Well, there's some things that are pretty interesting. First of all, look in verses 2 and 3. As Donovan alluded to, uh, Paul is again standing before these authorities, and he says in verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. You see, Paul's first method is that he is respectful. Paul has the message from God for eternal life. And yet in front of this human authority, he does not disrespect him. He does not come to him and say, listen, you might think you're in charge, but you're not really in charge. He doesn't look at him and say, listen, you think you're powerful? I know someone way more powerful than you, and if you don't answer to him, you're in trouble. He doesn't disrespect authority. He has regard and respect for the position that Agrippa holds, even though Agrippa is not an honorable man. Festus, will find later, is not really an honorable man, and yet to the position of authority, Paul is willing to show respect when he says, I'm glad that I'm able to present before you. Secondly, in verses 25 and 26, Paul isn't just respectful, he's reasonable. He's reasonable. Look what he says when uh, Festus, who is there with King Agrippa sitting in, in Festus's throne, and he's kind of watching this happen, and he's listening to Paul uh, talk about what happened to his life. And Festus says, listen, Paul, all of this learning you're doing is driving you crazy. Now you can tell, this is a little bit of a side note about history, that Festus is new to the area. But because what he's learning is only what the Jews have been saying about Paul, that Paul was well known in Judea. Brilliant man. We might equate him to be like, uh, he has his doctorate from Harvard, and now he's a professor at Stanford. That's the kind of brainiac intellect that Paul was in Judea, and everyone knew it. And so when Paul converted to Christianity, all of the Jews said his learning made him go crazy. Kind of like, you know, A Beautiful Mind. You ever seen that movie with Russell Crowe? Like, like he's brilliant, but he's not all there. They, they think that about him. And so Festus has been listening to these Jewish advisors Hey, Paul, all that he's saying, he's just kind of crazy. And so Festus blurts out in the middle of what Paul is saying, and he says, all of your learnings making you crazy. And look what Paul says in verse 25. Oh, Festus, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking what is true and what is rational. And he goes on later to say, the things that have been done, Jesus Christ and Christianity, have not been done in a corner. They haven't been done secretively. They've been open before witnesses and people have watched this. This is not crazy. This is logical. He would say later that over 500 people still alive today are witnesses, eyewitnesses, that Jesus Christ is not dead. This isn't illogical. In fact, 
This is reasonable. Paul bases his explanation on logic and facts. Now listen, not just upon feelings or even beliefs. He doesn't just say, I feel like this is right, Festus. He doesn't just say, I believe this is right, Agrippa. He presents to them a reasonable case that Jesus Christ was alive, died on a Roman cross, which no one debates, but is alive today. He presents it as reasonable. It's not mythology. It's not legend. There's nothing hidden. It's presentable. So it's respectful. It's reasonable. Thirdly, in verse 27, it's remarkable. Look what he says in verse 27 to Agrippa. After he says that I'm persuaded that none of these things have escaped Agrippa's notice, meaning this stuff that's happened with Jesus, he hasn't missed it. It hasn't been done in a corner. Now look in verse 27. After answering Festus, he turns to Agrippa. Try to get the moment here. Agrippa's got his life in his hands. And he says to him, verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Meaning, do you believe what the prophets before have said? about what's to come, and Agrippa does. In fact, Agrippa is so involved in the Jewish world that the Caesar gives him control over appointing the high priest in the temple, in this area. Agrippa believes the prophets. And look what he says. I know that you believe the prophets. The prophets have bear witness to what was going to happen with Jesus. Do you believe the prophets, Agrippa? I know you do. And here's why it's remarkable. Paul, in his great logical mind, boxed in this Agrippa, the authority, respectfully. But then he went for it with boldness. He said, you've seen the facts. You believe the prophets. And now he says, you can't deny it, Agrippa. You can't deny it. And this is why, let me share with you something. It is so important when you're presenting a case for Christianity to people who might not be Christians, listen to me, that you present it about Jesus Christ the man first before you get into doctrines before you get into ideologies before you get into teachings before you get into moral beliefs it always starts with Jesus what do you think about him because when you talk about him you either have to say he was who he was or you deny that who he was either you say yes I believe that he lived yes I believe that he died do you believe that he raised? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Because if you don't believe that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, then we have no point arguing about his teachings. He's not in control. He's not authority. But if you believe that he raised from the dead, then even if his teachings go against what you believe, you've got to submit yourself to him. Do you see why it's important to start with who Jesus is? And that's what Paul did. So he's respectable, he's reasonable, he's remarkable. And finally, he's resilient. In verse 29, after uh, commentators don't know if Agrippa is joking, if he's sarcastic or if he's serious, in the way that he answers Paul when he says, in such a short time, he asks a question, would you convince me to be a Christian? And commentators don't know if he's kind of mocking at him, like, ha, do you think I'm going to be a Christian? Or if they're serious, like, you think in a short time I'm going to convert? Either way, it doesn't matter. Look what Paul does. He's resilient in his hope. In verse 29, Paul says, Whether the time is short or the time is long, I would to God that not only you, Agrippa, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Meaning, 
Whether Agrippa was mocking him or he was serious, Paul didn't care. Paul had an unshakable, unwavering hope that Agrippa would become a Christian. So when he interacted with authority, he was respectful, he was reasonable, he went for it because he was remarkable. And lastly, he was resilient in his hope. He believed that Agrippa might become a Christian. My question is this, how could Paul be so focused on this goal, this mission in his life, with all of these things happening, standing before world powers, with his life on the line? Was he just out of his mind? How, how could he be so focused and central? How could other things not be more important to Paul, like survival in this moment? How could he present the gospel with such clarity when faced with such difficulty? How could he do this? And finally, it's this way, I believe. It's Paul's mindset. It's his mindset. As you see throughout the presentation, all that Donovan read for us, Paul is calm and he's collected. He's not calm and collected because he knows he's going to win the case. He doesn't know. He's not calm and collected because he doesn't care if he wins. He does care. He says, it's better, Philippians chapter 1, that I remain in the flesh. It's better for you. He wants to survive this. Paul is calm and Paul is collected because he already has what he values most in this life. He has secure, eternal joy and peace found in fellowship with God. Therefore, hear me, if the authority in his life gives him what he doesn't want, or if the authority in life takes from him what he doesn't want taken, they still have no power over what he values most. And here's the key. When people in authority have what you want the most, whether it's a civil authority, a boss, a coach, a teacher, when people in authority have what you want most in this life, you will balk at sharing the gospel with them and out of fear that you won't get what you really want. When the authorities in your life have the thing that you want more than anything else, you will freeze in your moments of sharing the gospel because you'll be afraid that you'll miss out on getting the thing you really want. And here's the point. You cannot covet and convert at the same time. You can't. You can't covet things and convert at the same time. When authorities in your life possess, have the thing that you value more than anything else, you'll balk at sharing the gospel with them. This comes to a very, very important point about authority I need to share with you. Authority is both those who have power, civil authorities, your teachers, your coaches, your boss, those who have power, but also those to whom we give our power to. For Paul, it was the civil authority. They had his life in his hands. They were in charge. But for us, it could be the boss who has the promotion in his hands or her hands. And we want that. It could be the coach who has the playing time in his hands. It could be the boy or the girl or the potential spouse that has the yes in their hands. That we give authority to because we want that thing more than we want anything else. The highest authority in your life 
is simply the thing that has what you want most. Civil authority has the most authority because it ultimately has your life. But the highest authority in your life will be the thing that, you, that has what you want the most. And until God is the thing you want most, you'll have a bunch of authorities in this life, running in your life, that care nothing about you, and you won't be open to sharing the gospel with them when the opportunity comes. Paul was able to share the gospel with Agrippa and with Festus because he ultimately had the thing he wanted most. He was respectful, reasonable. He could talk with them about that. He could honor them as authority. He could continue on in that situation, whether it's a boss, a coach, a teacher. He could engage in that relationship and let them be authority. But they did not possess the thing he wants most, and that's life with God eternally. You see, God will not become the thing you want most until you understand, not just in your head but in your heart, that you are actually the thing that he wants most. In fact, the Ten Commandments tell us that God is a jealous God, meaning that he longs to relate to you. How much? Well, so much that he would give up everything to have you back. And he didn't just give up everything to have you back just for himself, as if he's some desperate lover or something. But he did it actually for you, because he knows the thing that you ultimately need the most is him. You're running around this life everywhere, giving people power over your life, letting people be authority in your life, thinking they have the thing that you want the most. And God is over here whispering your name over and over saying, I'm the one that you've always wanted. I'm the one you've always needed. And when you get me, you've got everything. And then you can begin to share in the mission of Jesus Christ. Okay, how do you obey this today? Two things. Here's how you obey this message today. Number one, reflect on and ask yourself, what are your personal convictions about the gospel? Can you list them? Blank piece of paper in front of you. What are your personal, deeply held beliefs and convictions about the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do you believe humanity needed most? And how did God answer that need? Can you write that down? Think about it. Because that becomes the thing you share with people. What is your personal convictions about the gospel? You've got to take time to figure that out, okay? If you need help, please, please, please call. Please call if you need help. Number two, what things in your life challenge God most for being the supreme desire of your heart? Everyone's got them. What are the things in your life that challenge God most for being the most supreme delight in your life? What causes you the most fear? Here's how you find out. What causes you the most fear? What captures most of your attention? What absorbs most of your time? And what uses the most of your money? Ask some of those questions. You'll find out the things. I'm not saying they currently do hold that position, but they challenge you the most. They challenge God the most of being the highest delight in your life. And when God is the highest delight, you become the freest person in the world. You're then free to enjoy people and jobs and relationships and respect authority and share the gospel openly because God is the most important thing to you. And if he's not, we certainly are always available to you. Uh, now, as we stand and sing, or anytime, let's stand and sing.